On Friday, January 26th, the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, reconvened at The Hague in the Netherlands to decide on provisional measures requested in the South Africa versus Israel genocide case. The court concludes prima facie that South Africa has standing to submit to it the dispute with Israel concerning alleged violations of obligations under the Genocide Convention. The decision, delivered by Joan E. Donoghue, president of the court, was a win for the supporters of Palestinian rights and human rights, and was also viewed as a blow to the credibility and reputation of Israel. The court announced a series of provisional measures, which Israel is obligated to abide by. This week, we examine the provisional measures, what they mean for the war in Gaza, the mechanisms for their enforcement, and what they mean for Israel and its Western allies. My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. Before we start, a brief update on the situation in Gaza. As of February 2nd, the death toll now stands at at least 27,100, with more than 66,000 injured. Israel continues to attack the southern city of Khan Yunus, and fighting continues to threaten and dominate many areas in the north and in Gaza City. There were reports this week that a new proposal for a ceasefire and the release of hostages was being studied by Hamas. So far, there has been no word on if the fighting will stop and for how long. A hospital in the West Bank town of Jenin was the scene of an assassination when armed Israeli commandos, disguised as Palestinian doctors and nurses, entered the hospital and shot dead three men while they lay in bed. Israel claimed that the men were Hamas members, but the raid was widely condemned and described as a violation of international humanitarian law by Palestinian officials. Over the weekend, a far-right conference in Jerusalem called for expelling Palestinians from Gaza and rebuilding or expanding illegal settlements in the enclave and occupied West Bank. In attendance were 12 Israeli government ministers, around a third of the cabinet, according to Israel's Channel 12. On January 31st, Emergencies Director of the World Health Organization, Michael Ryan, gave a dire message at a press conference. This is a population that is starving to death. This is a population that is being pushed to the brink. Um, And they are not parties to this conflict. And that is at the core of this. They are not parties to this conflict. The civilians of Gaza are not parties to this conflict. And they should be protected, as should be their health facilities. That is our only interest in this, um, and I believe uh, that the international community need to reset our expectations in this response and reset the behaviour of all parties in this conflict. Much of the coverage of Gaza this week has been dominated by the harrowing humanitarian situation and, more specifically, the decision of a number of nations to suspend funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA. This decision is likely to have devastating consequences for the people of Gaza, who are in desperate need of help. We will be addressing this topic and the humanitarian situation as a whole in next week's episode. This is a historic day. 
Palestine welcomes the momentous order by the International Court of Justice. This order means that the court recognized the gravity of the situation and was convinced by South Africa's compelling presentation that was based on law and fact that there are plausible cause to believe that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. It means that the cries and suffering of our people in Gaza have been heard in the great hall of justice. That was Amar Hijazi, Assistant Minister for Multilateral Affairs for the State of Palestine, speaking outside the International Court of Justice on January 26th. The ICJ had just announced the provisional measures that would be imposed on Israel. Explaining the reasoning for the provisional measures, Judge Joan Donoghue said this. The court considers that the civilian population in the Gaza Strip remains extremely vulnerable. It recalls that the military operation conducted by Israel after 7 October 2023 has resulted inter alia in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and the destruction of homes, schools, medical facilities and other vital infrastructure, as well as displacement on a massive scale. The issuance of the provisional measures were actually the second decision made by the court. The first decision was to accept the case against Israel. Two weeks earlier, they had heard the arguments from both sides, and following deliberation, the judges came to the decision that there were grounds for South Africa to bring the case before the ICJ concerning alleged violations of obligations under the Genocide Convention. They also agreed that there was a level of urgency, hence the provisional measures. The provisional measures ordered by the ICJ should have a considerable impact on the war in Gaza. So what are these provisional measures? First, they ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent the commission of genocide and ensure that its military doesn't commit any of those acts. This is Akila Radhakrishnan. I'm the strategic uh, legal advisor for gender justice at the Atlantic Council Strategic Litigation Project, and I'm the former president of the Global Justice Center. They also ordered the prevention and punishment of the direct and public incitement to commit genocide. They ordered immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of humanitarian assistance, measures to prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence, And then they said that Israel should submit a compliance report within a month of the measures that it has taken to actually ensure that these measures are being met. In no uncertain terms, the International Court of Justice said that the killing of civilians must end. But not just the killing. They also said that any harm to civilians must also stop. And I think it's important in the context of how this is being carried out that the court actually called for more than just stopping the killing of Palestinian civilians, right? They actually called for the prevention and non-commission of four of the five acts of genocide, of which killing is just one. And I think understanding the robustness of it also helps us understand perhaps what needs to come next. So the other acts that they also said should be prevented or not committed are the causing of serious bodily or mental harm. And that's something that we really also need to consider and layer the fact that you have almost 50% of the population of Gaza as children. They also called for the prevention and commission of imposing measures of the conditions of life and what are the connections of that crime to the provision of humanitarian aid 
and the dire situation that's resulting on the ground, not only from the bombardments, but also by the denial of access to humanitarian aid and essential foodstuffs and, and, and other basic necessities. They called for the the same with with respect to imposing measures to prevent births. So it's much more than killing. In terms of looking at the context of potential genocide in Gaza, you're looking at a very robust set of actions that can actually form the core of genocidal acts. And Israel needs to its you know its compliance needs to make sure all of those are not happening and are being prevented. Going into the hearing, it was hoped and expected by some that the court would also order a ceasefire in Gaza. This did not happen. I think it's perhaps readable that the judges felt like a ceasefire was not perhaps within their mandate, especially as this was a case that was being brought under the Genocide Convention. And that per their rules, they need to see links between the measures that they're ordering and the rights that are being asserted. But I also think it's really important that we're not necessarily just looking for a particular word and saying what the court did or didn't do, right? So if you start breaking down what they're asking Israel to do, they're asking for Israel to prevent the commission of genocidal acts and, you know, including the commission by its military forces. They're asking for the provision of humanitarian aid. You know, if you look at the facts in the case, right, the provision of humanitarian aid has largely been hindered by the, you know, continuous bombardment and the inability to actually meaningfully provide humanitarian aid. The court is looking at a range of baseline facts to find that there was a plausible connection to genocide, whether or not they found that genocide is occurring. It's worth mentioning that at the hearing last Friday, the court was never going to pass judgment on whether genocide was or wasn't being committed. That judgment will be made later, likely in many years from now. Right. So I think that implicitly what the court is saying is that at a minimum, Israel has to think about halting or drastically curtailing its military operations. They need to change in character because obviously what led them to this point of being in front of the court is giving an indication that some of what the court is worried about may be happening. If you've seen any of the coverage of the war in Gaza, it should be obvious that more needs to be done to protect civilian life, property, and vital infrastructure. So the court has made an order. Will Israel follow? So uh, I would say that uh, Israel was uh, definitely relieved in a a way that it did not call for a ceasefire. This is Khalil Jashan, the executive director of the Arab Center, Washington, D.C., a research center that focuses on Middle East developments and U.S. foreign policy in the region that it did not charge Israel with genocide at this time. This remains uh, for the future. The court reserved that for a future date to discuss. But I would say the chance of Israel abiding by all of these, even though some Israeli spokespeople have already insisted that all these things have been carried out by Israel, but except for kind of half-baked attempts at allowing some humanitarian aid under pressure Uh, to enter Gaza, I wouldn't say that these have been fulfilled, as some Israeli uh, spokespeople have been uh, claiming. And personally, I I, am not very hopeful that Israel will abide by any basic rational, I would say, uh, uh, percentage of even uh, these uh, provisions provided by the ICJ. Israel's commitment to continuing the conflict was evident in the number of Palestinian civilians killed and injured in the days that followed the provisional measures. 
on January 27th, one day after the ICJ announced the measures, around 174 Palestinians were killed, approximately 215 the day after. It has continued in a similar fashion since then, day after day. Given Israel's attitude to the accusations and the court itself, this was probably to be expected. You know, in a way, I would say the Israeli attitude toward the court is not your typical or your rational approach uh, by any state uh, around uh, the world. I mean, when, when you look at, for example, the immediate reaction, the rejection by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, of the ruling uh, on the 26th, and, and you look at his earlier statements as uh, representing the state of Israel, uh, that was being under investigation. When you look at uh, the repeated statements reflecting that attitude by so many officials that the court itself uh, used as evidence. I mean, it, it was an easy case to handle. The, the Israelis, uh, with, with leaders like that and statements like this, they definitely did not need enemies in this regard. At the same time, they did not take the court seriously. I mean, it, it's from the very beginning, they described it as anti-Semitic. Uh, they described it as totally focused on hate of uh, people of Jewish background. Uh, they called it a disgrace, uh, the fact that it even discussed or took the case. They described the country that brought the case, South Africa, as anti-Semitic. And they continued to do that even after the uh, 26th. The reaction was very arrogant, uh, not just uh, from Netanyahu himself, but his defense minister, telling the world court that uh, Israel does not need to be lectured on morality by anybody. Uh, at the same time, his foreign ministry was uh, trying to kind of soft pedal uh, uh, backward uh, by saying that ah, Israel always abides and will continue to abide by international law. But if Israel did abide by international law, uh, this case wouldn't be before the International uh, Court uh, of Justice. Given the attitude that Israeli lawmakers have regarding the proceedings at the ICJ, and perhaps most crucially, the fact that they continue to attack and kill civilians in Gaza, it's worth asking what are the penalties for breaking the provisional measures? Provisional measures are ordered. The court, South Africa can go back to the court for additional provisional measures um, if that's something that they want. But in the process of the court, this is something that's actually decided upon at the end. Right. It's not something that the court will opine on necessarily midway through once they get the compliance report. While the compliance report is due within a month, don't expect to read a copy anytime soon. The compliance reports are confidential and their contents will not be revealed until the ICJ delivers its final judgment on the case, which, as we mentioned, will probably take a few years. And so in that context, the ICJ in their final judgment can, of course, make findings and rule on compliance with provisional measures as the case went forward as a part of their final decision. And final decisions of the ICJ are also enforceable by the UN Security Council. And so at a point where there's a final decision, you can go to the UN Security Council to have the, you know, the judgment be given effect if the party feels like it's not being complied with. All this means is the violations of provisional measures are not going to spark some immediate response. A continuation of the violence or continued genocidal speech by Israeli politicians will not see 
raids by ICJ police, not least because they don't exist, perceived violations will be noted down in a confidential report, and a judgment on these violations will be made when the court delivers its final judgment on whether Israel is guilty of the crime of genocide. Between now and then, there is the option for nations to go straight to the UN Security Council. The Security Council certainly has both the power and the mandate to be able to do so. They're not required to do so. And it's it's not something that, you know, is an automatic entitlement, but there's no question that the Security Council would be the appropriate venue to go forward to say these are being violated, XYZ actions need to be taken, including they have the power to refer to the International Criminal Court, they have the power to issue sanctions, they have the power to order the secession of hostilities. Those are all powers within the Security Council. And, you know, in an ideal world, all of these arms are working in conjunction with each other. There is a problem with the UN Security Council when it comes to issues relating to Israel. It's an issue that's existed for a long time, and one we've spoken about in the past. It is, of course, the U.S. From the very beginning uh, of this case, uh, the U.S. was antagonistic to the case, uh, even though after these provisions were issued on the 26th, uh, the administration pretended or tried to spin off, if you will, uh, the decision of the court by saying it was totally consistent with American policy and, and American view. But at the same time, this administration from day one and after the provisions were issued continued to repeat that Israel has the legal right to defend itself. As if all that happened and all that the uh, court uh, discussed uh, was a matter of self-defense by uh, the Israelis. Uh, they still continue to say that the allegations of uh, genocide uh, are uh, unfounded. Uh, that uh, the lawsuit itself was meritless. And and they were happy, actually, to state that uh, the court, even though it was a technicality, but they took it uh, politically uh, by saying that the ICJ did not make a finding on genocide because there is no such thing uh, as genocide being committed by Israel. Since the start of the conflict, the Biden administration has been asked about horrifying reports that Israel is violating international law. It has been shown shocking evidence that Israel is violating international law. So far, nothing has managed to break their resolve to support them. I would not be surprised at all uh, if the U.S. would continue to shelter uh, Israel before the court and before the world court, before the the world community of the United Nations, as it has done uh, before. Particularly this administration has been almost a knee-jerk reaction without much thought worthy of a superpower in terms of using that, uh, even though they campaigned way back that uh, they will not engage in in such behavior. Uh, But they did, uh, and they continue to to do that today. And I will not be surprised if they will uh, repeat the same mistake again. Continued support for Israel will not be free for the US, not just because of the approximately $3 billion in military aid that it sends every year, But the U.S. will also pay a price regionally. We saw this just this week when a U.S. military base in Jordan was attacked and three U.S. soldiers were killed. When the final bill comes, Khalil believes that the price could be very high. In the short memory of our foreign policy in Washington, we never think in those terms as if like uh, mistakes by this administration might be there 
Uh, there might be a price to pay, but then that's up to future administration to worry about, not for us. Uh, it's a very short-term uh, foreign policy, unlike, let's say, some other open democracies around the world, uh, like in Europe and so on, where, where foreign policy is a bit more uh, serious than uh, in, in Washington and tends to think in, in longer terms, if you will, beyond four years per administration. But I would say that this, this policy... Uh, in terms of the war in Gaza, uh, by this particular administration, the Biden administration, has been very costly. Uh, the price is very high, and I have a feeling, I'm not exaggerating, uh, I say it actually with sadness, that several administrations in the future will be paying a heavy price. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the people in the region, uh, not just Israelis, but also Palestinians and Arabs, will be paying a heavy price uh, for the mistakes uh, committed thus far. A recent public opinion survey commissioned by the Arab Center Washington, D.C., pretty perfectly encapsulated the feelings towards the U.S. in the region. And when you ask him about what do you think of the U.S. position over the past four months, 94 percent, I've never seen a number like that, 94 percent of Arabs in, in these 16 countries, 8,000 of them that we surveyed, considered the American position as bad, and 82% as very, very bad. Only 3% considered U.S. policy as good or very good, you know, given those uh, two choices. For years now, the U.S. has tried to hold a careful balancing act, promote its publicly stated ideas of wanting two states and peace and cooperation between the Israelis and Palestinians, while simultaneously giving their full-throated support to Israel, who have generally worked in complete antithesis to these ideas. The war in Gaza has pushed this balancing act to the limit, and possibly even pushed it over. It is trying to do that. It has been trying to do that for a while, but it hasn't been successful at all. I mean, take, for example, one component, the issue of it's in our interest, American interest, to prevent this conflict from spreading beyond the borders of Gaza. Well, look, this, this week, as you just referred to the Jordanian incident, this is the sixth front of this war now. You know, it, it started in Gaza, then the, then the West Bank, then, then South Lebanon, then, and so on and on, Yemen, the Red Sea, Iraq, Syria, and now Jordan. So th the policy has failed uh, not by accident. It, it's by, by design, in a way, because it inherently embedded with, with contradictions. One of them is what, you know, the bottom line of your question is, how do you put the cart in front of the horse and expect to get there? You know, we're, we're talking about the day after, we haven't dealt with today. We have failed to, de to deal with today. So the, all this talk about the day after is an escape from reality. It doesn't matter, it, it could include some positive sounding components, Palestinian statehood and, and, and so on, normalization, recognition. But how do we get from point A to point B? You got to go step by step. So unless you stop this conflict, uh, you can't talk to me about the future of the region when you're refusing to even accept a ceasefire. The gulf between what the US says it wants and what Israel is doing has never been wider.
the path via the International Court of Justice will take a long time. Years. During that time, Israel can continue to commit atrocities in Gaza and against the Palestinian people, similarly in the West Bank. Even when the ICJ does present its judgment, it is more than likely that Israel will be sheltered from accountability by the US. So then, what's the point of all of this? If there can't be real justice, why bother at all? The ICJ was set up to be a very specific type of institution with a very specific type of mandate, right? There was in its construction, it wasn't given its own enforcement arm. As a part of the United Nations, its, its enforcement arm is the Security Council. So I think that those questions are, are always ones that are going to come up. But I think let's go back to, to brass tacks here. I think the importance of the court has already to a certain extent been proven. In that, you know, in this moment of a, a political impasse, South Africa bringing this case to the court, the presentation of the facts in the way that it was so made, the decision of the court that there is plausible risk, you know, again, a very specific standard, the genocide may occur or may have been happening is all important in and of itself. You know, the fact that we're having this conversation now because there was something that they were able to do and able to do relatively quickly. The genocide case at the ICJ was brought by South Africa despite the politics. The case serves as a platform to show the world what is happening in Gaza. Maybe it won't bring accountability, but it can never be said that the world wasn't told. Additionally, the case is a message for the victims to say, you have not been forgotten. Final words to Akila Radha Krishnan. And so I think it's also important that in all of this politics, we also don't discount the value that these types of proceedings have for the communities themselves. And I think for those who have been suffering in Gaza, I think you can see kind of a narrative shift in some of the political conversations in the broader mobilization around a call for a ceasefire. I think it really helped a lot of folks understand the, the breadth of the situation, how things have been unfolding. So I think that we, if we connect the value purely to, you know, what becomes a question of political feasibility at the end of the day, it does feel hopeless. But if you start looking at what are the other values for such a proceeding going forward, including for the victim community themselves, I think there's a lot to be seen. This episode of the New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar Al-Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at the New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.